One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's probably no secret to you by now that I love horses and medieval history, but my guests today have just finished the biggest survey on medieval war horses ever conducted. They're joining me to discuss what they've learned and to talk about some of what I've learned from a lifetime of riding horses and wearing armour. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I have a very exciting podcast for you because an area of passion for me, as you know, is the medieval warhorse. And I have with me two people who are studying that very topic. So, gentlemen, would you please introduce yourselves? Yeah, shall I go first? So my name is Oliver Crichton, Professor Oliver Crichton. I'm a Professor of Archaeology here at the University of Exeter. I'm Professor Alan Altram, uh, and I'm an archaeological scientist who specialises in zooarchaeology, the archaeology of animal bones. So zooarchaeology is a specific area of archaeology, is it? And it is specifically animal bones. Yeah, so studying the interaction really between humans and animals over time. And it's one of the areas that I think we often, in our modern society, with internal combustion engines and vehicles galore and roads, is the prevalence of animals in close proximity to the living conditions of most people for most of recorded history, I would imagine. Is that something that you notice in your studies in particular? Uh, yes, it's a key thing, actually, that zooarchaeologists study. In particular, of course, a big issue is the whole domestication of animals in the first place, when we did start having a much, much closer partnership and forming those bonds. And actually, while we're thinking about horses, I mean, horse domestication is one of the most important developments in that. Uh, I mean, revolutionised transport and connectivity. If you think about it, horses were the fastest means of uh, transport for thousands of years, up until steam trains and the motor car. Yes, so quite frankly, if you wanted to go as fast as you could, that fast as you could would be on a galloping horse. Yeah. Um, you might not know this, but I actually have an Iron Age chariot, practical Iron Age chariot, and two hill ponies that are 11 hands high. And we're going to talk about height of horses and things quite a lot. But a lot of people think that because something's small, it's not fast, and that, that is not true. I, I've done quite a few documentaries with that chariot, 
And people have said, how fast can it go? And I said, well, it can go at the top speed of a galloping horse. And that's 30 miles an hour, probably 35 miles an hour on good conditions. And that's fantastically fast. Even today, if you're on the back of a galloping horse, you know you're traveling fast. Mm. Back in the day, if the alternative was walking or maybe sailing in a boat, perhaps a horse going at top speed would have been like supercar sort of speeds, I would have thought. Yeah. Absolutely. They have a huge impact on how people see the world. So my background is medieval archaeology. I'm interested in the archaeology of the medieval period, particularly landscapes, and I've had a lifelong interest in castles. People often think castles are full of wealthy people and full of soldiers. They're also absolutely full of horses. Right. The sights, the smells of horses would have been absolutely essential part of life in a castle or any noble complex. So let's just try and conjure a picture then of a, of a medieval castle. Obviously, we, we hear about the sort of the people that owned it and you've got the sort of guards and the, effectively the, the men at arms there. But you would have had a massive household running it, wouldn't you, of domestic servants? Do we have any idea of how many horses might have been part of a typical castle? I mean, what is a typical castle? It's very hard to say, but try and conjure the, the scene. I mean, you have slightly, slightly less of a precise idea than you might imagine. Documents sometimes will give inventories of horses and particularly detailed expenditure on horses. But our project is very much grounded in in the archaeology and in the material reality. And one of the main ways that we've been able to study the presence of horses in castles is, is through bones. Castles, often in rubbish pits, contain remains of horse bones, of course, alongside lots of other species. And we've carried out great deal of analysis on these bones, measuring them, sampling them, analysing them in all sorts of clever scientific ways. Well, let's dig into that a little bit then. So these are parts of horse bones or fragments of skeletons. Were horses really buried sort of in a ceremonial way in the medieval period? Or is this another area of confusion? That's the million dollar question. I think I need to defer to my colleague. But generally speaking, from my point of view, horses are typically found in fragmented form. Of course, they're, they're not eaten in the medieval period for religious reasons, due to religious sensibilities. So they don't find their way into food waste. They're often fragmented, but our project has unearthed and is looking into a couple of really, really intriguing examples of poor cemeteries. Well, you're going to have to expand. One of you is going to have to expand on that. So we were actually talking about horses buried rather than bits of horses thrown away. Because even today, when a horse sadly, and anybody that has horses knows it's absolute tragedy when a horse dies, the body is quite big and has to be taken away. And today you pay for it to be cremated and you have the ashes back. Or, and a lot of people probably think this is quite squeamish, you can have the body butchered and fed to the hounds, for example, in a kennels, which a lot of people think is really awful. But in a way, especially if you live in that sort of society, you're sort of your horse is integrating back into more wildlife in some ways. So I wondered whether that's probably going off topic, but there's, whether there's evidence of them using the horse meat for other forms of domestic animals at all. Yes, I think it is the case that uh, a lot of horses would have ended up being used in that way. For almost everything from animals of all species would end up getting used in the medieval period. I suppose these days they call it animal byproducts. But uh, there was definitely the equivalent happening in tanneries and horn yards and knackers yards in the medieval world. And we do, in fact, know from historical records that even from the royal studs, um, horses that died were often sold to urban centres where there was that sort of industry in animal materials. And so it may be that the meat did go for dogs, but also the hide for leather, the bones for tools and so on. One of the sites we're just looking at at the moment, we found a horse bone skate 
people used to make skates out of the metapodial bones, which are in the in the feet. Ice skates. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The other fascinating little little bit of archaeological insight into how horse bones are treated and used and reused on some castle sites, in fact, other sites, it's not unusual to find evidence of the bones being gnawed, tiny little marks showing that they've been gnawed away, presumably by hounds, by animals that they're being fed to. Yeah, so sometimes there are cut marks on the bones which show that they have been butchered, not necessarily for human consumption, as we were saying, but you know, you would still have to butcher for animal consumption, and we do see the gnawing marks. So yes, we can evidence that. But as Ollie was alluding to earlier, there are a couple of unusual sites where horses are buried, and it's just horses. And they're also not in the parts of towns you'd expect that sort of industry. Usually those industries are outside town walls, away from high status things, because you know it's not a very pleasant industry. It smells, you know, it's downwind, downwind yes. and downstream, yes. <laughs> and, and there were indeed even medieval laws about that, you know, the rules about where you could put that industry. But there are two sites where horses are buried, and where they are is very significant. So one of them is very close to the high status medieval buildings in Westminster, also not far from London. Take a guess. The other site is in Windsor. So one might think this special treatment of those horses might relate to some very high status horses. We can't prove that exactly at the moment, but it's so unusual. And those places are so important in the medieval world that I might imagine that these are special horses that are in those. Well, that's fascinating because it's one of the things that it's very hard to find out from the written evidence or even the archaeology of the the relationship, the emotional relationship between, let's say, a knight and one of his horses. And from a perspective of a, of a horse owner, trainer, and rider myself, if you spend a long time with any animal, you build up a relationship with it and uh, you go through ups and downs training it. And we know that, in my opinion, it's likely that a good war horse was very well trained because it makes sense if you're going into battle to have something that's going to do the job properly. And training takes time and time means money. And it's also a social show off as well. If you have a wonderful looking horse and horses are the equivalent of cars today, we know how people brag with their posh cars. And I think human nature hasn't shifted that much. So I'm certain people would have bragged with their fancy horse. Is that likely in your opinions? Absolutely. It's something our project is really hoping to get to grips with. You know, the term warhorse, the word warhorse makes you think of a war fighting weapon, but we're also really interested in their social roles. It's very clear that they, you know, have this iconic significance. They're very, very important to, to social status. The word chivalry is ultimately, you know, derived from the French word for horsemen. So we're really interested in their social roles, what they tell us about status, about image, about the projection of power and identity. One of the things that I've noticed from riding horses is your view of the battlefield or your view of the landscape. It's actually quite surprising for people to think that. But if you think about it, you're higher up. You're, you're eight foot off the ground, your head. And, you know, most people are smaller than six foot, especially in the medieval period. You know, six foot would be a fairly tall person. So you're a good two foot above the mass of infantry. And you can move really quickly. And as a fighting platform, a horse has its positives and negatives, but as a moving platform and a viewing platform, it's actually a force multiplier. You can be over there really quickly and see what on earth is going on. And the poor infantry is standing there wondering, are we going to get attacked soon? Or there's dust everywhere and other people's heads. Nobody knows what's going on at all. But the people on the horses might have a much, much better view of the events that are going on. 
So size of horses. It's weird. I've encountered this popular notion that medieval war horses were massive, like massive shy horses, which seems to be silly, but you can tell me otherwise. And there now seems to be a bit of a counter. What can I call it? The sort of slightly more clickbaity articles that are doing the rounds based on some of the work that you guys have done that medieval knights rode ponies. And of course, pony brings with it its own connotations of tiny Shetlands. And of course, that's not the case. And it's not what your study shows at all. But it makes for an interesting thought exercise. A horse has to be a certain size to carry a man, let alone a man in armour. So could you help expand on that sort of data, what you found in your studies? Because it was a wonderful and very interesting piece of work. Can I start off by saying that it is to the evidence of archaeology that we have to go for any sort of answer. And this was really the point of departure for our project. There's lots written about medieval war horses, some fantastic books, but they're written by historians on the basis of historical documents. And references to the sizes of horses, the physical sizes of horses are exceptionally, exceptionally rare. So it's to the archaeological evidence, and in particular, the bones that we have to turn because the documents don't provide us with the answer. So give us an overview of the evidence that you're looking at. And I think it was over quite a wide period of time. And obviously, it's very hard, I would think, from the remains to actually determine the purpose of that horse. But anyway, I'll defer to you guys because you're the experts on this. So we looked at almost 2,000 horses over a long period, going from the Roman to the post-medieval period, so that we could look at comparisons either side of the medieval period. And what we were looking for in particular are horse bones that are long bones that still have full length, because we often have the problem that things are fragmented, they're just broken up, and we need actually to do the measurements. We need whole long bones, which again limits the number you can look at. So this is probably the largest database of such whole measurable long bones that is available. And what you can do from those measurements is extract at an approximate wither's height. There's a set of calculations for different bones, which scales up to tell you a wither's height. And for those that don't know what the withers are, that's the, the sort of top of the shoulders of the horse. So you don't measure from the top of the horse's head because that's obviously completely variable. There's a geometric point on most horses, which is sort of just above the front legs that's fairly fixed, isn't it? Or relatively. It's a good anchoring point. Yes, absolutely. And so we can calculate those, those with the sites. And, and what we found was that there really aren't very large horses present at all, which is why we sort of said they're smaller than a lot of people perceive. I suppose just to give some scale to this, a sort of Clydesdale could get as high as 18 hands. A sport horse, three-day eventing might be 17 hands. For a police horse, police horse have a lower limit of 16 two hands. And I suppose just to say then that we didn't find in all of those almost 2,000 measurements. We didn't find a single horse that would meet the modern police requirement. That's interesting. Right. So nothing above 16.2. Was there anything 16 hands or? In the later medieval period, we had one just reaching 16. Just one. Hmm. And we have in the higher medieval period, we have one reaching 15. But most are below that. And in fact, the vast majority are more like 12 and 13 hands. That's the average sort of medieval horse. Now, we're not actually suggesting that the Destriers, the, the great horses they were referred to even at the time, are really small horses, but many of them may well have been technically ponies because the technical cutoff is 14.2. And we think that probably there were plenty of uh, war horses that were only around 14, but it, it may well still be that relatively at the time they were larger horses, you know, that your average is 12, 13 hands, and maybe your war horses are 14, 15 hands. 
Those are the exceptionally large ones that we've found. So yes, it isn't necessarily the case that we're suggesting that they're really small. And you can do quite a lot with a, a 14, 15 hand horse, and they can carry quite a lot of weight. And one of our PhD students has actually done some of the calculations for weight bearing and so on, and you know what a, what a 14 hand horse can manage, and has managed to demonstrate that actually a 14 hander can manage the weight. Yes, well, just so that you know, you might be interested in this, I have a, a, a fjord mare called Boudica, who is 14 hands, and she has carried a man in full late medieval plate jousting. Not the full contact jousting, but the bolster jousting. It's still proper combat, and she's still galloping flat out, and with no ill effects whatsoever. I mean, so she was carrying a man in four or five stones, so half his body weight roughly again, at speeds, you know, okay, only over 50 yards or so, but accelerating, decelerating, with no ill effects over a whole weekend. And in fact, she was a substitute horse because one horse got lame and she was uh, riding against the pretend King of England at the time. So it's quite rather nice. She beat him in every single tournament. So that was nice. But she is quite strongly built. So she's a sort of chunky pony. She's not a skinny pony. And of course, you do get taller horses that are skinnier. Mm. And I've got taller horses and I feel like they have more trouble with the weight than a chunkier, shorter horse. And as we know, if you look at human beings in sport, power lifters are not necessarily particularly tall. It doesn't actually, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't particularly help a power lifter if they're tall. But swimmers have to be tall, and obviously basketball players preferably tall. So it depends on what you're trying to do with the physique that is right for the sport. And my guess is that horses were used for all sorts of things, lots and lots of domestic tasks, lots of casual riding, transport majority of it but your super specialist really expensive big horses perhaps were reserved for combat or perhaps for showing off on Mm. combat (laughs) and some of the data i've seen sort of requires knights to have a certain type and structure of horses i think as well you might know this better than me but i remember reading somewhere where it said knights shall muster and shall bring a destrier and two palfreys And we're never quite sure what this means, but it's clear that there's a different type of horse, or rather the horse does a different job in their mind. Otherwise, you wouldn't define it as such. Yeah, it's true. I mean, for military purposes, horses do a a whole variety of different tasks. People think of the big destrier with a knight on top of it, but horses pulled siege engines, they pulled siege cannons. They were used for, for raids, for chevauchet. We have lots and lots of interesting documentary references to hobbelars, hobby horses, very small horses that are used for raids in rough terrain in the late 13th and the 14th century. Archers in Henry V's campaigns are mounted on horses. So they're used for a you know, bewildering variety of, of purposes within the military. I mean, something that absolutely fascinates me and I want to you know, get to grips with as the project continues absolutely fascinated by the fact that you know how often knights choose not to fight on horseback at some of the you know most important pivotal battles of all knights elect to get off their horses and they they fight on foot the one that really intrigues me is the battle of the standard 1138 the height of the norman period an english force versus a scottish force and we're specifically told that the knights get off their horses the horses go to the rear they're sort of stored at the back of the army and the knights form a big phalanx, which the Scots happen to throw themselves against. But, you know, even at the height of the Norman period, the knights specifically, they don't fight on horseback. 
And do you think that was their choice? One of the things that I find interesting about that particular text is is whether it's because that's the way they've chosen to fight or whether it's actually them being commanded to get off the horses because there's some worry that some of the knights might use the horses to get away rather fast. What you can certainly rely on is that, yeah, they're being told to do it. They're following orders. I think that's absolutely sure. I mean, on the one hand, is it stopping them fleeing if the battle goes wrong? That's one theory, one possibility. The other is that they're trying to bolster the morale of a rather ramshackle army. You know, they are the elite. Is the fact that they're fighting on foot alongside the other foot soldiers, is that boosting morale? Do we know whether the Scots were mounted at all? Yeah, I mean, a, a wing of the army is mounted and right at the end of the battle there's a mounted charge against the English line. So it's the Scots that charge, but the English are absolutely all on foot. So they actually chose to fight in a different way to the Scots there? Because I was thinking if the Scots were just on foot and the English dismounted to fight them on foot and maybe had an advantage in armour or number, but they were a little concerned that people could go, actually, I've had enough of this fighting and, and disappear quite quickly on horseback. But aren't the references to the fighting in the English style, which usually means dismounting? Indeed, yeah, there are references to precisely that. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Having done fake fighting on horseback, I've done it for movies, documentaries and things. One of the challenges when we see fighting in films is that obviously people aren't really fighting. And a lot of the cases, the performers themselves are not particularly confident on horses. And a lot of the time, they, they want a certain shot. So I was doing a thing on Richard, Richard III, some years ago. And I was playing Henry Tudor. And they wanted me to ride past Richard, who was a fellow reenactor, and tap him gently on the helmet with my real warhammer. And I pointed out that, no, it's a real warhammer. I, I can't be that precise. And it's specifically designed to kill people and therefore it would be really unethical of me to hit somebody on the head with it and not expect severe consequences and I asked them what the shot was and they wanted to see a helmet hit with a warhammer and I said well let's take the horses out of the equation and let's stand on chairs and do it that way then we got much more control because being on a horse no matter how good a rider you are there is a variability that is generated by the behavior of that horse and what that horse is thinking. And I wonder whether the very close charges, particularly of the Norman Knights, are in part due to the psychology of horses in groups, in that if those horses are properly clustered together and if they're squidged and they're all galloping in the same direction, in my experience, you have a somewhat difficult job of actually stopping them from completing that charge horses are flight animals they will just keep running in that direction because they're all running in that direction you see it in horse fields suddenly one horse gallops off the others all gallop after it and then they all stop and wonder what they'd all galloped for 
but their first reaction is to keep up with their fellows. And I wonder whether the high-impact horse chargers rely, to a certain extent, on the psychology of horses in groups. And the poor knights are almost going, um, I can't stop my horse even if I wanted to, so I'm going to close with the baddies. And I'm going to hit them. I'm going to well make it look good because I ain't stopping this horse from closing. And I suddenly had this different vision of the medieval battlefield of a whole bunch of people on out-of-control horses doing things slightly against their will. <laughs> I don't know whether that's crazy or not. No, I don't think it is crazy. And it's very difficult for us to really know. But I do wonder if occasionally some of the dismounting orders are because... Whilst the horse can be a huge advantage, there are occasionally disadvantages. Well, they will refuse to close. You know, so I've been, again, at events where we're supposed to be sort of tap-tapping the weapons of the enemy to make it look good. And some horses just won't get anywhere near that roughy-tufty band of shiny, shouty things, even though they're theoretically semi-trained. So I would imagine your expensive horses would probably cope with that. But there's a whole bunch of secondary quality horses, if you like, which almost certainly were part of it. And no matter what the riders can do, their horse is sensibly going, eh, no, I'm just not going there. And it might be that for full effect of all your met arms, you actually need them to be on the ground and committed to the attack. So I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, there are good examples of cavalry charges going completely wrong. The one that comes to mind is the Battle of Lewis down in Sussex. Prince Edward leads a dramatic charge against the forces of Simon de Montfort, scatters one wing, but then goes hurrying into the countryside and by the time he returns the tide of the battle is completely turned so they all just galloped off and everybody's going oh i can't stop my horse and the horses are going we're having a lovely time galloping in the opposite direction and imagine the shouts of all those men screaming at each other stop the bloody horses and they gallop away from the battle and miss it i mean that's a bit absurd actually but very real we know that disasters like that can turn the tide of a battle we know that weather can have an effect on one side more than the other at Towton you know the arrow storm was differential and I see no reason why the behavior of horses couldn't actually do the same kind of thing yeah do we have any evidence of the robustness of the horses from the bones yes there is a little bit of that in the paper but we'll have a lot more on that because you were quite right when you were reflecting earlier that height is only one thing in this. We think shape is very important. So we do have measures of a robusticity, which sort of compare the length and width of the bones. And some of that's in the paper that we published. And one of the things that is a little bit of an interesting trend we have already picked out is in the high Middle Ages, when the use of horses as destriers in warfare was at its height and the royal stud network was at its height, there is more robusticity in the rear leg suddenly comes in and then it goes out again just in that period and we are interested to know whether and it'd be interesting to know what you think about this whether increased sort of power to the rear end is something that you would want in in the sort of horse that you're using for that purpose i would say absolutely i I sometimes try and explain to people that a horse that's flat out is going very fast but sort of has a sort of fragile momentum you know it can be tripped very easily You have no acceleration. And what I have felt would make more sense is that you briskly go towards the the enemy. And then at the last possible moment, you accelerate towards the enemy. And that's that acceleration with the back legs to sort of accelerate and power in and through the line. That, to me, makes more sense. And also, you want the ability to get out of trouble. And a, a stationary horse surrounded by foot 
and a stationary man is going to be A, outnumbered massively, and B, very vulnerable to being stabbed upwards. And again, it's why I sort of look at movies and TV shows where the man is stationary and they're kind of doing swinging either side, left and right. And I'm thinking, nah, horses are intimidating. And for a moment, the foot will reel and move back and move away from you. You just don't want to get thumped by a massive great horse. But you've got a few seconds before they realize actually you're now vulnerable. A few seconds to sort of spin around almost and get out or ride through. So I, I don't have any evidence of this, but I suspect that if the charge did hit, there was just chaos for a few moments. And then the role of the horseman was to get out and rearm and reform. You don't stand around and wait to be pulled off your horse or hacked down. Possibly that happened to Richard, Richard III. You know, he got literally bogged down, I believe, is one of the thoughts, and that he couldn't reform and redress and got dragged off his horse and slaughtered. And it might be that's an example of what you literally ought to try and avoid in cavalry combat is being static. I have seen some interesting footage of irregular horse in the modern day, modern day crowd control. There's a scene I saw in Egypt, I think it was from a drone or a helicopter, of irregular horse going into a horde of rioters and everybody moves away. <laughs> and then the creatures, because I think there's some mules and might even be a camel in there. It's a very bizarre sight. Everybody starts to move back towards them and realizes that there's actually only 12 of them and there are 100 or more rioters and they can take them on. So there's this sort of moment where the tide turns and I get the feeling that having a robust horse would allow you to take advantage of that moment and get out. So we're taking all of that a little bit further now. That was just off sort of simple measurements. Now we're x-raying some of those bones as well to see if they also thicken up because it's not just the external dimensions of a bone. But I think a lot of people won't know this because everyone knows that when you do lots of exercise that, you know, you put on muscle, but actually activity remodels bone. It's not something which is entirely dictated by genetics. Bone does remodel through life and you can see activity related changes in bones, both in terms of them thickening and muscle attachments becoming stronger. So we're looking at that type of evidence. A famous example of that evidence actually is in humans because the arches on the Mary Rose are lopsided. Right. Because of their activities, it's more force on one side than the other. The bones are more thick on one side than the other. Would that have been noticeable if you were looking at them in life? Or is it sort of really only obvious, perhaps, from doing analysis of the bones? I think it's the case that some American baseball pitchers have historically had similar conditions. Oh, well, OK. I'm not sure if it's visible on the outside, but it's certainly true in the bones. So that's the sort of thing we're looking at. And we're also looking, doing 3D scans of the bones in the ankle because they're very important to telling us about changes in physical running capability and things like that. Yeah. There's also a lot of really fascinating stuff locked up in medieval illustrations, particularly manuscript illustrations. We had one of our undergraduate students did a fabulous dissertation looking at the sizes of horses on manuscript illustrations, looking at horses in different contexts, military horses and elite horses and pack horses and so on, and was able to prove that in military context, there's a very, very obvious tendency for these horses to be depicted with large rear quarters. So backing up exactly what Alan's saying from the archaeology and the bones. And slightly shorter backs as well. That's another thing we suspect that the right sort of horse wouldn't have a ridiculously long back. Uh, it would have a slightly shorter back on the whole. Well, that's interesting. You might not know this, but the Frisian horse, for example, at the moment, the Frisian horse typically bred for carriage. It's a beautiful high-stepping horse. 
I've got a hybrid, I've got what's called a warlander, who's an Andalusian Frisian mare. And a lot of people think of those as warhorses. The ancestors of Frisians were possibly ridden horses. But as their breed has been bred for a particular aesthetic look, that aesthetic look has slightly shifted, a bit like dogs and sloping backs and dogs and slightly extremes of physiology. But the back has got visibly longer. And a long back causes all sorts of problems in riding and carrying weight. So when I'm looking for a horse to do the things I do with it and to ride with reproduction medieval saddlery and reproduction medieval armor and things, I want a fairly short back. I want a back that is proportionate to the horse rather than it looking long. And I find that means the back side can be underneath your weight a little bit more, which gives you an ability to turn faster. It probably slows you down in a flat-out race. I mean, racehorses are typically long and low and quite spindly, actually. And especially American racehorses often have bone fractures because they're so focused on minimizing bone mass at the end of their legs, which is quite a disaster, really. But the Andalusian-style horse and training it so that instead of standing with wide leg spread, you train them to stand under or with a backside underneath. And that in my experience, gives them a lot more acceleration power, like the American quarter horse. It gives an ability to power suddenly and put that power in. And I think if I was going to go into combat, I'd want a horse that was able to put power on the ground very quickly and get into and out of trouble very quickly. So that's interesting. That's really interesting to hear about. Then, of course, there are things we can't do from just looking at the bones and, and measuring them. But we've got a genetic side of this as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, we are doing all of the material culture and the bone work and the historical work, but there's another project running at the moment, which is a European Research Council-funded project called the Pegasus Project, which is run by a guy called Ludovic Orlando in Toulouse. And he's doing a massive run of ancient horse genetics from very early on, the earliest domestication, actually some wild Ice Age horses as well, right up to the modern day. And he's doing a very large number of samples for us in this project. And he's going to be able to tell us quite a lot of other interesting things. Horses are very well studied genomically. I guess it's because of the wealth that's in the racing industry. And there are very important markers for some of the things that we were interested in here that we, we just can't get at otherwise. There is a marker to do with temperament and an easy biddable temperament. And actually, it's a marker that increases in the earliest domestication of the modern domestic horses. Going right back to over 4,000 years ago, you start to see that increase when you get the spread of modern domestic horses along with another gene which reduces back pathology. So those are two things we know you can look at. Um, so we can look potentially at temperament in the horses, a limited amount of information, but nonetheless. And we can also tell things like coat colour, because there might have been selection of horses for the way they appear for different functions, of course, as well. Something we've also looked at in the manuscripts. And they do tend to depict wealthiest people on white horses often, I have a theory about that, because as somebody who owns both black horses, brown horses and white horses, white horses get filthy all the time and they take a lot more effort to keep clean. And I'm wondering, it's a bit like wearing white gloves or white clothes. It's like it's a sign of status that you've got a clean horse. Whereas if you're a farmer, you just want to wipe the mud off the bits that matter so the horse is going to be comfortable and get on with it. I pretend to be a medieval knight sometimes, but the thing I don't have is all the people around me. You know, I don't have people to look after me in the way that they would. It's actually much, much harder. I had a lance rest. I was trying out a lance rest, and I realized that actually having a lance rest sticking out of your breastplate 
when you're handling a horse is really, really quite dangerous for the horse and you as the rider. Because he gets caught on things like the reins. And it suddenly occurred to me, of course, as a knight, I wouldn't be handling my horse with a lance rest. I'd have somebody else do that. And this would have never come up in the medieval period because your knight wouldn't be doing that servile job. But it's fascinating. So, so we can look at a little bit of horse personality and we can look at color. That's going to be fascinating to see whether there's a trend in colors because there seems to be a trend in colors in the modern horse breeding world. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Looking forward to that. That's going to be superb. And I suppose we can track down other elements of breeding as well and whether they're deliberately bringing in stock from elsewhere. Something that we know starts to happen from around 800 AD onwards, basically when you get the Spanish Caliphate developing, is you do through those Islamic connections, you start to see lines of genetics that come from the Arabian Persian world. Not to be confused with the modern Arab breed, because that's not necessarily quite the same thing we're talking about, but coming from that area of the world, genetics coming in. And we also know that there was quite a lot of deliberate trading of horses uh, with Spain to get that type. So we're beginning to see that coming in. We haven't got many samples that say that at the moment, but we were able to show if there is an attempt to bring in that sort of genetics from outside Britain deliberately. You'd think that there would be, because if the elite horses were so valuable, then there's a sort of human drive to capitalise on that. And if you had a fantastic bloodline of horses, you could charge kings and nobles a lot more money for your horses. There was a question I was going to ask you guys, because I've not been able to find out about it. People ask about the training of horses. Do we know much about how medieval horses were trained or who by? I mean, we talk about the royal studs, but that's about breeding. Do we know much about the training of them or how they were handled? It's a great question. I think our project's never going to be able to tell you exactly who did the work, who did the training. But what we can hopefully tell you in the fullness of time is where the training took place. One of the work packages is trying to map the network of medieval studs, where they were and how the network expanded and changed through time in line with royal needs and other factors. And one thing that's crystal clear is that studs are maintained mainly in deer parks, in medieval deer parks, parts of the country that are privatised, cut off with a bank and a ditch. They're very private parts of the landscape, especially royal studs and studs that are owned by barons and the higher nobility are all secreted away in deer parks in the countryside. And of course, it takes 11 months roughly for a horse to be born, and then you can't really do much with it for... Well, for this type of horse, for the sort of Andalusian type of horse, I mean, racehorses are raced as two-year-olds roughly, and they're not really fully grown at all at that stage, even though that breed is bred to mature faster. They want to make the money quickly. But your Andalusian types, you know, the bone joints, I believe, sort of firm up at much later ages. So you're talking about four, five, six years old before you can start, really. So it's quite a long process of deciding you want a war horse and then having a warhorse that's delivered to your client, perhaps. Yeah, it also seems to be quite clear from the work we're doing, and in particular the historians on our project at the University of East Anglia, that different horse studs are used for subtly different purposes, particularly different seasons or dealing with horses in different stages of their life cycle. A site that we've studied in quite a lot of detail is a place called Odium down in Hampshire that seems to have been the specialised stud for training colts. Oh, right. That's fascinating. So specific area. So colts would turn into stallions. So colts are ungelded. Stallions have a particular physicality to them. I've got several stallions. I ride them and I love them. But a lot of people find them quite intimidating even today 
stallions are not widely used in your average equestrian sports today, for those that don't know. But they do have more musculature. They have a more can-do attitude uh, in some cases. And they can also get distracted very easily as well by other things I find in the landscape because they're aware. They seem to be aware and looking much more perhaps than geldings, which are male horses who've been neutered. Mares are very variable as well. Some of them are superb horses to ride. Typically, I think of knights as riding stallions. Yeah, pretty much exclusively. But is there evidence of that? Yeah. One very close look at the Bayer Tapestry will show you very, very clearly that they are stallions. <laughs> and for those that aren't that squeamish, you can see, well, you can see the sheath where the penis comes out. So yeah, we absolutely can tell that. Um, so that's interesting. But half mares, half stallions. So the mares are going to be used for something and often they're used for breeding, especially in Andalusian landscape, where you've got bullfighting horses, of course, which are possibly very close to combat horses. Well, they are literally combat horses today. Whatever you think of the ethics of bullfighting, the fact is that somebody's life is on the line when they're riding those horses. So I think that's an interesting reference point for us when we're looking at fighting horses. But of course, mares are incredibly useful for breeding, but also for riding, uh, and they behave differently. Do we have an example of mares going to war? Can you tell from the bones whether they're male or female? Um, the genetics, again, will give us that. There are some bones on the body. You can tell if you've got the mandible because of the presence of canines in stallions. And actually, the Westminster site, where they are all buried more properly, they all have canines. So those are males. Again, another indicator that this might be something special that might relate to war horses. So we can tell from the genetics. So we'll get a lot of ratios from that. Just thinking about something else that we were talking about earlier, the movement around these different uh, studs and when horses were trained and when they were moved on to go into service. This is something else we can get at with another scientific method, which we just started doing. It's looking very promising. We can look at teeth and we can tell from the chemical signatures in teeth where the horses have been. Horse teeth are very large and very long, and they take a long time to grow when the animal is young. So the back two molars, the M2 and the M3 as they're called, the back one would be equivalent to our wisdom tooth. They form over quite a period of time from the crown downwards. And while that young horse is forming that crown, it'll be eating the local food and drinking the local water. And it will take in chemical signatures that will then get deposited in that tooth as it grows. And a particular thing we look at is stable isotopes of strontium. And one of my colleagues is a specialist in doing this work. What he does is to take a very thin sliver of the tooth all the way from the top to the bottom and then uses a laser to burn down it. And there's a, a million pound machine that we rent in Southampton Oceanographic Institute that sniffs what comes off the laser and gives the stable isotope ratios of strontium. And it shows us about mobility and the geology that those horses are on. At that critical period when they are turning into adults, you know, in the last part of their youth, and I can't quite give away some of the initial results because we need to do a lot more work. Of course, of course, yes. But actually, it's promising that we may well be able to answer the question as to when they leave where they've been trained and when they start going into service. Oh, wow. It does look like we will be able to do that. It does look like we capture it in those teeth. That's fantastic. So effectively, that laser burning through the slice of the tooth is sort of rewinding time and giving you little snapshots of where they are, and then suddenly it changes and they've gone somewhere else, and we can find out roughly where that is. Then you can aggregate all the data and you can go, right, well, these horses are being trained here until they're, guessing, four years old. Then they're going somewhere else, 
And maybe there's further training going on that's a different style of training. Because, of course, you don't immediately train a horse for war. You've got to train it to be handled, which happens when they're very young. There's quite a lot of training you can do for a young horse to do with behaving, not biting you, not kicking you, not barging into you, all these sort of what we call horse politeness behaviors. And then there comes a point in a horse's life where, as an owner, you're slightly frustrated because you actually can't get on it yet. But you can do things like you can get it used to a head collar or a bridle going on and off. You can't get on it yet because its bones aren't ready yet. It's too young. But you can put a saddle or a saddle pad on. So you could do the very beginnings of training it to be a riding horse. And you do it very slowly. You know, you don't suddenly, well, in my experience, it's much better to do five minutes of training with a horse three times a week than it is to do an hour's training once a week because it de-stresses the whole situation. You just throw a towel over the horse's back and just leave it there for a couple of minutes, take it off again. And then it's no stress for the horse whatsoever, but it's sort of getting used to it. And then eventually you put a saddle on it and eventually you do the girth up gently because the girth obviously feels quite tight for a horse to begin with and it's a very unusual thing. And quite frequently they try to bite you, which is not unreasonable considering you're putting something around them for the first time. So you always have to be a bit aware because they, they, they can come around quite quickly and bite you. So that would be fascinating to sort of try and unravel the educational history of a horse. Yeah. Just to add, one of the incredible things about this array of scientific techniques is you can use them on the same bones. So from the same bones, we can have genetic information, which can help us reconstruct how big the horse was and the isotopic information about you know where it came from. So together archaeological science has the potential to open up a completely new perspective on horses is it conceivable that we could ever get enough genetic data to sort of not obviously rebreed a horse i don't know whether that would ever be conceivably possible but to sort of imagine what it might have ended up like as an adult yes i suppose if we do come to a clear conclusion in the end from all of the information that we definitely have a, a horse then i suppose we would be able to say an awful lot about what it looked like yes I mean, it's not always very easy, even with the, the genetics. Some of these markers, they depend what other genes are there. It can get very complicated, even with the coat colour. But I think that's what we would perhaps hope to be able to do in the end, is to be able to give some sort of notional idea of what we think a warhorse really was like, a destrier really was like. And do you have an example in your head? Because I'd love to show you my horses, because I've got a couple of, uh, I've got one stallion in particular called Ghost you see him on my YouTube channel, Modern History TV, that he's 15 one hands tall. He's a stallion, but he's incredibly robust and really solid. I've also got a much bigger horse called Talos, who's Shire Andalusian cross. I think he's far too tall to be a medieval war horse, but he's interesting, partly an experiment, partly, you know, I just wanted to have a bigger horse. And I've got Warlord, one of my horses, who's 15 two, and he's Andalusian. It'd be interesting perhaps for you to come and have a look and see whether this is what you had in mind. That sounds amazing. Could I ask a question? Of course. We're really interested in horse armour. Yes. And the relationship between horse armour and the sizes of horses. Some of your listeners will have marvelled at horse armour and, you know, the Royal Armouries at Leeds or the Wallace Collection or the Tower of London. It's amazing, iconic stuff. But people have always studied it from a sort of art history point of view. We're really interested in what it tells us about how big the horses were. So we've been measuring particularly chaffrons, the face coverings in major collections, and I've got other collections to look at. It's fabulous work, really, really interesting. So my question is, when you've had chaffrons and horse armour created for your horses, how have you communicated the information about the size of your horse to the person making it? Well, lots of measurements. So what I have typically done is 
I've tried to mark the middle of its head with a chalk line. And then I've sort of divided that down into sort of inch increments all the way down to its nose. Because the dimensions that are really important in my experience are the width of the eyes, because you want as much protection, but they've also got to be able to see and where the nostrils are, because horses are obligate nose breathers. When they're working hard, their nostrils flare a lot and they need all that oxygen in. So you don't want the chaffron getting in the way of the breathing. You want it to protect. And I think we've got chaffrons that are half chaffrons, so some that cover the nose and flare out a lot. And others are very fancy and quite likely parade armor as much as anything. So the measurements are the one right between the eyes to get the sense of where the maximum protection is. And then the pole to the beginning of the soft part of the nose. And then the soft part of the nose to the end of the muzzle. And I notice a lot of chaffrons have a secondary protection over the forehead, what we might think of the forehead of the horse. I always wonder whether that's purely decorative. But I think it's unlikely to be purely decorative. I think it's also a form of protection for the physical brain of the animal. Because horses have got quite small brains. Some would argue tiny, depending on how they're behaving at the time. And so the head is actually quite big. But I'm fascinated as well. It'd be lovely to see the examples because some of those chaffrons look like they're quite big-headed horses to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how thick the padding would be underneath. I typically use about half inch of wool felt. Uh, it seems about right. It doesn't take the chaffron too far away, but fastens it. And I always have a lot of issues over how you fasten the chaffron to the head as well. There's usually a plate that goes over the pole that I find is quite useful. If you attach those two things together, it kind of creates a shelf that means the horse's head won't fall off it. One of the things I've noticed about a lot of the crinets as well, which is the neck armor, the articulated neck armor, they don't really work on mares or geldings that don't have the stallion crest. So I think that to me is a very obvious sign that these were all built for heavy crested horses, that, that fat, a little bit of muscle, the sexual dimorphism that's in stallions that gives them that amazing shape of the forehand. The trouble with <laughs> crinets is that they're a pain in the ass for riding because it interferes with the neck reining. I don't know whether you guys have ever done that, but you use neck reining a lot when you're riding one-handed. You obviously use your weight and your legs to control it. When I first rode with a crinet and chaffron, the control I had over my horse was very restricted, I found. Then there's something we need to relearn there. There might be a different riding technique to use. You do see spiky reins as well. This is an interesting observation. And people have said, oh, that's to stop people grabbing the reins. And I was thinking, might it be to kind of slightly prick the horse's neck as you're controlling it? to give it those signals through the cloth armor that would possibly be underneath the crinet. And I don't know, because I've never, I've never dared try anything like that on one of my horses. You know, like I've never dared having sharp spurs, because it just seems unethical. But it's an interesting thing to look at at some stage, whether that's a thing. Yeah, you mentioned spiky reins. Of course, there are also sometimes spikes in the middle of the decorative piece in the middle of the chaffron. They're called rondels. Sometimes there are spikes on those. Like a unicorn horn as well. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. It's a classic question people ask of these things when they see them in museum collections. Is the horse meant to look like a unicorn? I've never actually heard a convincing answer as to whether there's any truth in it. Yeah, it might be for deflection purposes. It might be decorative. It might be a combination of things. Because a lot of medieval armour, as you'll know, 
is shaped to deflect as much as absorb. And if you can deflect a blow, you don't have to have such heavy armor to absorb it. So it's all about deflection and increasing your survivability, perhaps. But also, yeah, we know armor was show-off stuff. We know it's likely horses were show-off stuff as well. So there's going to be this combination of reasons for having fancy armor, gilding, fancy fabrics, you know, all of that. The, the, the social... Yeah, it's especially the case we've got the same decorative scheme on the human armour and the horse armour. We've been looking at some amazing material that comes out of the Greenwich armories where you have, you know, the same scheme of decoration on the human armour, on the horse armour, just together, the most incredible medieval bling. Didn't they have costumes as well? I think there's some reports of, I remember seeing an illustration of a lot of the foot were dressed in the same way as the rider and the horse. So there's basically a whole ensemble <laughs> There's team colours, if you like, yep, yep. or team costumes that went with it. So just the last thing, how expensive were the elite horses in the medieval period? Do we have a clue? And how can we compare that to how expensive things might be today? We do know quite a bit about that. Uh, now, whether we can remember this, just off the top of our heads, never matter. One of our uh, research fellows is a historian that's been reading all of the financial documents that go along with the Royal Stud. So if he was here, I'm sure he'll be able to tell you, actually, because there is a huge amount. Yeah. I mean, it's the one thing that is very, very clearly documented, the expense of the horses themselves and the accoutrements. What they don't mention is the size. So I'm afraid we don't have a precise figure. Our historian colleagues do. You don't know. So would your guess be, because I've often tried to conjure this up in people's minds, and people said, oh, how expensive were war horses? And I often say, Think of an expensive sports car. Mm. But I don't know whether that's too much or too little. It'd be lovely to find out, but that's how I feel. Or a supercar. A supercar, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, it's not just the actual cost of the horse itself, but we know how much they were spending on the feed and they were giving them really good quality oats at great expense, but also treating them with very expensive medicines. I don't know how effective the expensive medicines were. in the, <laughs> But I mean, we're talking about commodities that would have been exceptionally expensive including horse licorice. Horse licorice. I've got no idea what that is, but it sounds great. <laughs> but it seems pretty clear that the Royal Stud were spending an awful lot more money on the war horses than I think they were on any peasants. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> horses are much more valuable than peasants, without question, I think. there That was an easy one to guess. And as anybody that has a horse will know, or has ever looked after horses, actually buying it is only a fraction of the expense of maintaining it. You do have vet's bills and feed and all the bits and bobs that go with it, saddles and bridles and tack and transportation sometimes for the horses. And again, medieval horses were transported. We know that on boats and things. So fascinating. Gentlemen, we've scratched the surface and I would love to revisit this conversation at another time. And I would extend that invitation to you if you wanted to come down and have a look at the sorts of horses I think, from my practical experience, might have been the type that we are looking at as an elite horse. I would be delighted to do that. In fact, I was tasked by other members of our team. Ollie and I are not really equestrians, but so other members of our team really are, and some of our students that are working on the project. And I was tasked to ask you if at all we might be able to visit your horses with the team. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing. We will do that. Last question about horse armour. I'm having some horse armour made. Ooh. So I'm just having the, the, the rump part of it. Yep, it's, yep. it's been made now. We're looking at, we're looking at the under armour, the, the, the comfort part of it. That's made for Warlord, one of my horses, but I am intrigued as to whether it will function on much bigger horse as well. And so there might be an opportunity to do a little bit of experimenting and say, if you had to, if you had armour, 
and he had to move it from one horse to another, even if they are quite substantially different sizes, would it have worked? We don't know yet, but I suspect you might get away with it, even on a much bigger horse. So I think horse armour isn't necessarily as good an indicator of horse size as we might have hoped. Yeah, I think it depends. I think some of it clearly is, and some of the material we've inspected is clearly off the peg, Marks and Spencer's sort of, you know, knockoff stuff, which is pretty much to a formula. I think it's important to differentiate between that and the really bespoke stuff. The really high status. Absolutely, where measurements, clearly detailed measurements have been provided. So I think the preliminary results are saying, yeah, there's a big grouping, but there's a small number of very, very significant outliers, which really give us the important information. Well, you'd be more than welcome to come down and measure some of my horse's heads as well. So I've got a couple of horses that I think have got quite big heads. And I've got a big horse that doesn't have a particularly big head as well. So then I don't know how linked the size of the head might be with the size of the body. I mean, the other metric that we're interested in is the distance between the eye and the ear, because every single chaffron has got obviously holes for the ear and most of them have got ear protectors. But that's another obvious, Mm. you know, it's a landmark position that you can see on the chaffron and on the horse and can compare them. Right. Wonderful. Was there anything else you wanted to say to our listeners? How could they find out more, for example, about the studies that you've released? Is there an easily available resource for people that want to dig into it? We have a website which has a, a blog on it. So we post very regularly what we're up to with updates. So just Google Medieval Warhorse Exeter and you'll find our website. And we have a Twitter feed as well where we put out similar updates. Yeah. Great. And what's the Twitter feed there? AHRC Warhorse. Because we're funded, we should say this, we're incredibly grateful to the Arts and Humanities Research Council who funded the research. So we wish to acknowledge them. Thank you, them, and thank you, the taxpayer that gives them the money to fund us all doing the investigation into this fascinating area of our history, of our shared history. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.